Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Joshua, and I'm the world's mayor. We are broadcasting right now on the Live Mana Network, so thank you so much to everyone who has supported us. Uh, it has helped kept us going. Of course, you can find our network on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, the app stores of your phone, tablet, or computer, smart TVs, uh, also your favorite podcast network. Today is gonna to be special, uh, but really quick before we get into that, we are a 501c3 nonprofit media organization and multimedia broadcast network. So we are listener, viewer supported. And of course, uh, you know we are very, very passionate about what we do, being a voice for the voiceless, but also elevating voices for the voiceless. And today we have somebody that's, well, I mean, in some way had his voice taken, but now, He's getting his voice by being on this program, and now he is also being a voice uh, for other people that are locked away in shadow prisons known as hospitals. Uh, we've talked a lot recently about civil commitment laws. Uh, Mr. Roy Markham is joining us today from the Special Treatment Unit in New Jersey, and uh, he's got quite the story to tell. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last month. He's a really, it's hard to imagine this guy committing any crime. It just is. He just seems like a lovable guy. He's like your like a, your favorite cousin. It's just the vibe about him. But I don't know anything about what he's been accused of. I don't know about his crimes that he has admitted to. Um, but I'm very, very excited to hear his story and hear what he has to say. And from my understanding, he's been locked away for 20 years with no hope of getting out. And this is after he already served his time. This is going to be a very horrific story for some people to hear it may confuse people but at the same time i just ask that you open or you have an open heart and open mind um, so he will not be on video today so you'll be hearing him uh, just his voice you may hear see some weird facial expressions from me because i don't know what you're about to hear either so with that said let's bring mr roy markham on roy how you doing man well, good, good talking to you again. And first things first, we start off every broadcast by asking this question. It's the only planned question we have. What are you grateful for today, Roy, and why? I'm grateful for this interview. And I think that the reason why is going to become obvious during the course of it. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of ignorance, quite frankly, out there about what sex offender civil commitment is. And I'm glad to have the chance to put the story out there for people to get it straight and in hopefully a cogent fashion. I love that, man. And yeah, and you're right. There is a ton. There's a ton of different stories. There's a ton of confusion. And it's really, even for me now, who have immersed myself in this the last few months, there's just a lot of loose ends. And it's like every time I try to make a connection to something, it seems to slip away and so I'm excited to hear from you because you have a unique perspective that I think that other people don't really have. So I'm really, really excited to hear what you have to say, man. Well, I think unique is one of those words. It's like the old Chinese curse or the supposed Chinese curse where you live in interesting times. Yes, I have a unique perspective that other people don't have, and I hope for their sake they never get a chance to have it. I'm speaking to you from uh, a civil commitment center, center for sex offenders. This is the place where people come after they've done their prison time, supposedly for treatments, but primarily the idea is that people have been selected as highly likely to commit some kind of an offense in the future. Now, the particular one I'm in is located in New Jersey. This place is called 
not to be confused with the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center. That's an actual prison for people who are still serving their sentence and have some date when they'll be released. Unfortunately, many of them become here. But that's an actual prison, although we're located in the same town and we share some of the same administrative and correction staff with them. Okay. The basic thrust of this, it started in Washington in about the 1980s. There were a series of sex crimes that were widely publicized and that scared a lot of people. And what they started doing was they started looking for a way to indefinitely sentence people. In other words, people weren't satisfied with the 5, 10, 15, 20-year, or even in some cases, life sentence that people were getting. People wanted to lock them up forever, was the idea of it. And unfortunately, this caught on. In, uh, in a Supreme Court case called Kansas versus Hendricks, one of the things that they did was they approved of this type of uh, civil commitment. And the reason that they call it civil commitment is that it's a it's related to the normal mental health civil commitment laws for people who are mentally ill and considered dangerous. Except for this, you don't actually have to have a mental illness. You have to have what's uh, very loosely called a mental abnormality or personality disorder. And that's been done so they have what they call a very broad diagnostic catch. Think of it this way. If, um, if schizophrenia is pneumonia and, and bipolar is a severe flu, this is the case of the sniffles. You can have virtually anybody walking down the street can be diagnosed with some type of mental abnormality. Roy. Now, the other Sure. To, I want to prove... Uh, sorry to interrupt you, man. I... No, man. But okay. l literally in the newspaper today, it said... You, Jessica, you saw it. One billion people, one billion in, in the world have a... What's it? Was a mental... A mental a mental disorder. So like whether it's DID, BPD, bipolar disorder, a billion people in the world have it. Just to give you an idea of how broad it is. And and that's one of the big problems with this. This is this is an effect of in, in the military and in, in paramilitary operations like police or firefighting or something, they use a term called mission creep. When you start out with one objective and you say, well, as long as we're doing this, let's move over a little here. Well, let's clean up a little in this area, too. Well, why don't we do a little bit more of that? Pretty soon, you've lost the focus of what you've done and of what you started out to do and of what you've done so far. And this is what happened in the field of mental health and behavior. You got what, what some people are calling diagnostic cream. You got to the point where you're trying to medicalize every aspect of human behavior, okay? You're trying to treat things that are personality quirks or behavior problems or crimes or just really, really evil people as though it were a disease, as though it were a medical condition. And the reason that this is, pardon me, the reason that this is inappropriate, problematic, and dangerous, and all the other negative words I can think of, is that there's no certainty. Even if you look at the DSM-5, I think they're in now, okay? They'll talk about a lot of things that are culturally determined, that are that are dependent on a person's interaction with society and they're dependent on deviating from cultural norms and expectations. And quite frankly, you know, a broken arm or pneumonia is a broken arm or pneumonia in Beijing, Belfast, Johannesburg, Dubai, Cincinnati, anywhere. Okay? 
So something that's culturally dependent, how can you turn around and call that a pathology? Then they come up with this term personality disorder. Well, how can a personality be a disorder? Personality can be negative, can be destructive. There's lots of bad things in the world, lots of bad people, lots of mediocre people, lots of people who are in the middle or all up and down the scale. But that doesn't necessarily become a medical condition. And unfortunately, this is what they're trying to use to incarcerate people who have been in the most states convicted of sex offenses, although not all of them, but we'll get into that a little later. But they're trying to use these very broad diagnostic criteria to say, yes, we have a medical reason to believe that you will eventually, you know, or a diagnostic reason in some states, depending on the terms of the statute go. We have a diagnostic reason to believe that you will commit a, a sex offense sometime in the future. So everybody that's in one of these civil commitment centers is locked up not for what they've done, but for what someone thinks they might do. And as a matter of fact, in at least two states that I know of, um, Illinois and Kansas, you don't even have to have a conviction. You can have simply an accusation of a sex offense, where the charges are dropped or you're found not guilty, or the accusation just never pans out into any kind of a criminal conviction. And you can still be put into these places. Now, I know in Illinois, they have a very sneaky way of doing it. They try to disguise it as some kind of pretrial intervention. They'll tell somebody accused of something, well, look, go for a couple of months of treatment, and then we'll drop all the charges. Because this is obviously more of a, a, a mental health condition than it is a crime. So, and these poor souls end up in there 20 years later. Okay, they're not told what they're going into. Right. In Kansas, I'm not 100% sure how it works, but I do know that according to the Kansas statutes, yes, an accusation is sufficient. So now think about this. You have people that are potentially going to be locked up for life, and in some states, you don't even have to have a crime. You don't even have to have one single conviction on your record. And this is a myth that's very common. They say that these are for the worst of the worst or for people who have committed multiple sex offenses or we know these guys don't stop. And, you know, the, the, the old thing about uh, sex offenders have the highest recidivism rate of any group of criminals. You hear a lot of people from states, uh, boards of parole, state commissions saying things like this. It's not true. In fact, though. just the opposite. You heard that. Yeah, it's not true. And, and it's absolutely not true. All right? I have uh, a bunch of notes and information in front of me, and I can give you the the sites, and I'm not going to bog you down with too much, but I will do is, is get this information to you so you can put it out there on the web for people to link to. But I'll give you some typical uh, things. R. Carl Hansen is one of the major researchers in uh, sex offender recidivism and treatment. And many of his studies uh, are used in diagnostic ways and uh, doing uh, analysis of people that they'll find to be you know, committable under these statutes. One of his studies shows that the sex offense recidivism rate over five years was 13.4%. That's on the high end. There's another study that has shown a sex offender rate of 7.7% of rapists were rearrested for rape within three years of release. That's Alan J. Beck and Bernard Shipley. Bureau of Justice Statistics Recidivism Prisoners Released in 1983. And that figure has held up over the years, okay? I have, let me give you another one, just, just to show you what the what the actual thing is. Um, the 2016 Department of Justice study found that just 5.6% of 
interesting about that is that virtually every study has shown that like any kind of behavior that diminishes over time, the longer you refrain from doing something, the less likely you are to do it again. And it doesn't matter what it is, good or bad, okay? After five years, the rate drops off to almost nothing. And that's across the board for almost everything. The only group of people, the only group of criminals that have a higher rate of reconviction or reoffense or a higher rate of recidivism is homicide. And that's generally because people get a life sentence uh, or executed, or basically most people really only have about one murder. That hovers somewhere around 1% to 2%. But the sex offender reoffense rates have been measured as low as 2%. Roy, I got a question. This I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I I no, I, anytime. I tend to be a bit of a windbag. No, it's okay because I want you to get through. I know you have a lot of material, but so one of the things that I was a chem sex addict, so drugs and sex were my thing, and it escalated over time. Like it, in other words, what got me off the first time, I needed to amp it up a little bit the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And so it's really interesting, like when I was listening to some of the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes and I heard him talk about killing because you were talking about, you know, the, the, the repeat offender. And he, like, the more he killed, the more he wanted to do it. So it, the, the, it's almost like what I'm, where I'm trying to understand, like, I believe these stats because I've seen them myself, but what is driving the quote-unquote sex offender? Because if it's if it's not a, like a sex addiction, if it's not like what like how how is it not one of those things that you keep wanting to do? Because if you're acting out sexually, typically it's because you've got a, a drive and a desire to do it, and then once you scratch that itch, then you want it more. So can you explain? And I don't even know if you're you're qualified or you have an opinion or what. But how that those two things seem like they're in the same family. In other words, the sex addict, the Kim sex addict, that always want to do something more and dirty and more of it. But why is it with the sex offender they don't serially repeat their crimes? Well, the, the answer to that is twofold, okay? Um, the, the bad end of the answer is that there are those that do. And there mm -hmm. is a certain percentage of people that have some kind of pathology that causes them that. Just like there's a certain percentage of people who are, who are genetically or because of their personal history or because of some factor in their life susceptible to alcoholism, okay, or susceptible or more vulnerable to drug addiction, to opioid addiction, to um, cannabis dependence and things like that. But the sad truth of it is, just like most thieves are not kleptomaniacs, okay, most sex offenders are actually fairly ordinary people. And one of the reasons that these laws have been put in place is people want to distance themselves from, uh, from things, from impulses that, that virtually all of us have at one time or another. The problem, too, is how they're defining sex offenses and how they're defining sex events. Did you know that in Kansas there is a law that says that anyone, even another teenager, who touches a teenager with the purpose of sexually stimulating them is guilty of a sex crime? Do you know that a lot of these laws have been applied? Matter of fact, we got two guys here. We got, and, and one of them, huh, I'm not going to give his name because that's his business to share, but <laughs> one of them is a, is, a, is a real horror story. We have two 
guys here that I know of, and there have been others, and I think there's a few more that I'm not that familiar with, that their crimes were committed as juveniles, okay? And a lot of these are what they call Romeo and Juliet crimes. If you have somebody who's 17 and they get sexually involved with someone who's 13 or 14, and that's prosecutable in a number of states. We had a guy in here who had a sex crime, I believe he was 14 or 15. He was incarcerated as a juvenile. He finished his sentence. They let him out. They waited till he turned 18. He was on the street. Picked him up on his 18th birthday. No new sex crimes, nothing. Brought him back. And a lot of the people who are brought into these situations literally have not committed a sex crime in over 20 or 30 years. So, you know, what you're describing, and see, this is the problem. There's, there's two things that, that people get caught up in when they think of something that scares them. One is what's called the availability heuristic. That means what you've heard the most of. And right now in our society, what you've heard the most of is generally whatever's being ballyhooed on the uh, on the internet or on the local nightly news or, or in the papers for those stories. Okay? You're going to find that the more lurid tales capture your attention and they're easier to think of. And because it's easier to think of, it gives the mistaken impression that it's a common event. But it's not. A lot of these are extremely uncommon events. I know of two people, both of whom died in here. Okay, whose sex crimes literally went back to the early 80s, and they were brought in here in 99, well, one was brought in around 99, just as they were opening the facility, and another was brought in the early 2000s, I think 2002 or 2003. Now, this gets up into something called a recent overt act. A lot of these statutes don't have a requirement for that. Now, recent overt act is a very technical term, basically sound technical sounding. It basically means, have you done anything lately? Have you committed a new sex crime? Is there something that's just happened within the last year, six months, five years, within a few weeks of the petition? A lot of states don't have that. In New Jersey, you can literally, and this is, again, a couple of cases I've just described, quite literally what happened. You can have a sex crime that's more than 10 years old. You can be walking down the street, get on the wrong side of the attorney general, and he can have you locked up and put in here. In other states, you can be doing time for a completely unrelated offense, an offense that has no sexual connotations, that has no connection to sex offending whatsoever, and at the end of that sentence, you can be brought to a civil commitment center and civilly committed for the rest of your life. We got a guy in here, okay, who violated the conditions of his probation by joining a social media app, all right? Now, first of all, within about five years of is being brought here, that law was struck down. So what he did now is perfectly legal, even for people on parole and probation in New Jersey. And he never had another conviction. He never had another accusation. He never had anything. He was living a successful life as a, as a tractor-trailer driver. And because somebody, and, and by the way, actually what happened was some well-meaning but fairly stupid friend of his opened the Facebook app for him, and he ended up here violated on that. Because they violated his probation, gave him a minimal sentence for that, and then they sent him here. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, what you're describing does happen, but it's just not the most frequent thing. It's, you're talking about a very small percentage of the cases. Think of the number of people who are thieves and think of the number of those thieves who are kleptomaniacs. Compare the number of arsonists to the number of people out there starting fires by accident or insurance fires. And that's about what you're dealing with. That is a really beautiful, I don't know if beautiful is the appropriate word. Uh, that's a great example. 
that is, I, I can't believe you were able to answer that question the way that you did and make it make sense. It, it, so what motivates the sex offender now is, and I know you can't answer that question because you can only speak for yourself, but it's like, what's the motivation is, is the thing. And it sounds like some of the stuff happens on accident. I know one of the guys in Minnesota, um, I know about his situation and like, I can see how in a drunk mind that we'd be like, oh, that's acceptable. And then sober, oh shit, I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, this is really interesting to me because there's a lot of, like, a lot of gray area stuff here, um, that is, well, is being weaponized. Exactly. This, this is my turn, this is my turn to jump in on you, so I'll get, do it. I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll do, I'll do one for every three you get on me, because it's your show, man. No. <laughs> we got a guy here, we got a guy here who, and you know, I don't mean to be cavalier about these things, okay? Nobody is minimizing the suffering of victims. As a matter of fact, the majority of people here have been victimized sexually at one time or yeah. another in their life. And that's another one of the tragedies of this is that there is something to the idea that sexual victimization can lead to sexual offending. However, then you lose your sacred victim status and now you become the villain. But to get to this fact, he's, oh, he's about 10 years younger than me, so that puts him in his late 40s. So I'm, I'm right up on the edge of officially old. <laughs> and, uh, and right on his and, and right on his uh, notification page, it says consensual sex with underage girls. Okay, this guy would go to college parties and he would pick up girls because he just he had it like that. He was a handsome guy, tall, handsome, red hair, beard, you know, swimmer, great looking guy, and you know he had it like that. And a couple of times in his life, he ended up with underage partners. Now, one of the bad things about that is in New Jersey, a mistake, even a reasonable mistake, is not an allowable defense. Federally, it is. Okay? If you are positively misled, if a girl shows you a fake ID, swear she's over 18, in New Jersey, you can still do time for that. Oh. Even though you had no reasonable way of knowing. And on top of that, they're sitting here treating him for it, telling him, Day after day in these so-called treatment groups, but you must have some pathology. You must be attracted to underage girls because he said, "How can I have have a pathology? How can I have an intention when I didn't know I was doing it?" One of the girls did actually show him ID, and the other one told him she was over eighteen, and maybe he should have checked. But you know, it was actually. But in New Jersey, that's no defense. New Jersey law says too bad. She showed you a fake ID. Well, too bad. You should have known anyway. Dude, that's. Now, You're right. And it's, and listen, I, that to me could have, I mean, that, that I could have done that a bunch of times and never known. And, and I'm not justifying the way, like, I'm not saying, well, you shouldn't dress, but we have, I was, we were at a, a fan, like some family fall festival thing. And it was a church event of all things. And I'm looking around and I see teenagers, and they're obviously teenagers, but they're dressed up like they're going to an adult Halloween costume. That in itself, look, listen, I'm not saying that that person deserves anything bad that happens to them. But I'm saying when that girl goes to a party and she's drinking and she's around a bunch of drunk, horny dudes, no one, because of the perb switch or whatever happens with guys, is going to be like, I mean, you're at a college party. 
are they honestly thinking to themselves, I need to ID this girl when they look like they're the same exact age or they already have fake boobs or they have whatever. Like I'm telling you, these things are really, really dangerous. It doesn't excuse anything that has happened maliciously or intentionally, but some people are getting set up for failure. On, like, it, like, it's just a bad it's deal, man. I don't even know how to describe it. It's not, look, it's, it's not only men. I mean, there was a, there was a couple of famous cases, and, and I saw this one poor woman, she was being interviewed on a show, and I can't remember the specifics of her case, but she was talking about it, she says, how am I supposed to understand that this man who is taller than me and stronger than me and is growing a beard, how am I supposed to know that he was 16 or that, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's a woman in her mid-20s, okay? You know, and, and maybe she feels like getting in a little cougar practice this week, you know, <laughs> when she turns 40. And, and she meets a guy that she thinks is in college, okay? You know, and you, you have a whole feminist movement out there telling her rightly, by the way, okay, that women are free to explore their sexuality just the same as men are. Yep. And she turns around, now she's lucky enough not to be in one of these centers, but she's got to register for life, okay? And, and, and I'm sorry, okay? If, if you're talking about, if, if you're talking about a, a 188-pound, you know, high school wrestler, okay, who happens to, to pick up his teacher's sister at a PTA event, you're going to have a hard time getting me to believe that he was victimized. But this is the mentality we have. This is the psychology we've developed where, you know, it, it's a gotcha game. Okay? And that's part of the problem with laws like these is there's no, excuse me, what in the law is called mens re. Mens re means basically guilty mind. I'm, I'm sort of murdering the Latin, but it's an intent to commit a crime. Mm. And again, like I was saying in New Jersey, a, a reasonable mistake, even the positive misrepresentation of the victim as to their age, is not a defense. Well, there's no mens re there. There's no intent to commit a crime. Yet, because you have, again, legal terms, strict liability, all you have to do is cross over the line, bang, we got you. And you're going to end up not only getting your criminal sentence, but potentially put into one of these situations where you're being given what they call treatment. And again, you know, this has been shown, and, and this is one of the things that I want to emphasize. I want to tell everybody out there that's got a relative or a friend or who's able to listen to this if they're in an SVP center themselves, look, 90% of what you're being given as treatment and what you're being told has absolutely nothing to do with you getting out. Treatment is a busy box. Like they give little infants to play with, okay, to give you something to do, to give them a way to, to troll for little bits of information to sustain your commitment at the next year, if you're lucky enough to be in the state where you get to it. What happened was, to go back to this Kansas versus Hendricks case, because this was the case where the law was tested. The Kansas Supreme Court wasn't having any of this. They said, look, this is double jeopardy. These people have done their crimes. They've done their time. They're done. State of Kansas, the executive branch anyway, not the judicial, which had just shot it down, they took this up to the Supreme Court under Kansas versus Hendricks. And they had the perfect plate. They had the perfect straw man to attack for this. They had Leroy Hendricks, okay? And I'm not violating his confidentiality because his name is all out there, all over on the Internet, all over on the case law itself. He sat there and he said, when I get stressed out, I can't control the urge to molest children. And they have taken 
in that neighborhood. Okay? The things that go on in these places under the name of treatment, the constant abuse, okay, the, 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 the browbeating, the accusations, the false accusations, the lack of due process, the continual harassment, continually having your living quarters tossed and turned upside down. In some states, they have, they'll give you a list of people who you're allowed to contact on the phone and who you're allowed not to. In some places, they hand you a bill for this. They lock you up for this for the rest of your life and have the nerve to bill you $100,000 a year like this is head of treatment you've signed up for. Bankrupt you for life if you ever get out, okay? And then sit there and tell you, well, apply yourself to treatment. You need to be motivated for your treatment. Listen, and this is from extensive discussions with public defenders and with sex offenders all across the country and with experts who testified in different cases. All these experts for the attorney generals and for the county prosecutors and whoever's presenting the petition, again, different states, different laws, all they're looking at is three things. One, do you have a sex offense? Two, do you have what they call a mental abnormality? And three, can they justify that this mental abnormality somehow predicts that you will commit a sex crime in the future? And the main thing they base that on is this idea of getting back to what Hendricks said, that when I get stressed out, I can't control the urge to molest children. No matter what they tell you in therapy, no matter what they tell you in treatment, all they're doing is pushing your buttons and jerking you around to the point where they want to beat you down to make you so passive, so ready to accept abuse, then they feel like sending you out there into the world. Okay? It's like declawing a cat and turning him out to be feral. All right? And he, there's a little game they love to play in here. Again, this is in New Jersey in the special treatment. Part of the treatment, so-called, uh, and it's allegedly based on cognitive behavioral therapy, which let me tell you, it's not. Cognitive behavioral therapy requires an alliance between the treatment provider and the patient. And that ain't what you have here. You'll do a little exercise. You'll write an autobiography, a sexual history questionnaire. They'll have what they call a maintenance contract. Now, it's not a contract in any sense, because you're the only one pledging anything. But it's a little list of, of homilies and exercises and histories and things that they'll tell you to write down and work on, but this will help you avoid recidivism in the future. And what they'll do is you'll do this, you'll complete your little exercise, they'll put a little gold star on your paper, and then they'll come to you and say, look, this is good, but we want to change. We want to make some changes. We feel it'll be more effective. And since your treatment compliant, no sir, no ma'am, you make the change. Well, you make all the little changes. Okay, that's very good, but can you change this and this? So now you're on to the B version of it. And you change the B version of it around. Now they want a C version. And what, okay, can you just change one more thing? But if you have the sense to keep track of them, which they count on you not doing, by the way, mm -hmm. but if you have the sense to keep records, or if you do like I do and you see what other people are doing and, and you know, try to help them with some of their writing skills and stuff and get access to a number of these things, you find out what they're doing is you're going from the A version to the B version to the C version, sometimes all the way down to D. And then when you get to the very last one, it's exactly what you turned in to begin with. They didn't want any of the changes. What they wanted was just to tell you to move around and go here and go there and go here and go there. Okay? They want you to react with compliance, no matter how ridiculous something they tell you. They want to sit there and hand you whatever it is. They want to hand you a green one on Tuesday. Wednesday morning, look you dead in the eye and tell you it's red, and you're supposed to say yes and hand it back to them. Friday, they tell you it's purple, and by next Monday, it's green again. And the whole time, the bloody thing's been orange. But you're supposed to sit there and just say, 
Tuscadero was the name of the facility at the time. And, and this, by the way, this is one I'll give the title of the article out in full, and then there's two books that everybody who's interested in this needs to get a hold of and read. But this is called Assessing the Real Risk of Sexually Violent Predators, Dr. Padilla's Dangerous Data, American Criminal Law Review, Summer of 2018, and published by Georgetown University. He had a study that showed, again, to get to the recidivism rate, just 6.5% of untreated sexually violent predators were arrested for a new sex crime within 4.8 years of release from a locked facility. He also was showing that there was little, if any, treatment effect. The treatment didn't do anything. Well, word of this study got out. And in 2006, a public defender fighting to get his client's SVP commitment heard about the study. He was trying to get his client's commitment lifted. Because in most states, you do have a public defender assigned, although in some it's of limited value. Uh, but whatever. Get what you're EMH, the Department of Mental Health, they tried to quash the subpoena when this guy wanted Padilla to testify. Now, mind you, this was a study that had been commissioned by the state of California, that had been commissioned by a Tuscadero State Hospital. This was a study that Padilla was ordered to do. Well, he went and testified, and they tried to use HIPAA, they tried to use other things to prevent him from testifying. So Padilla eventually went and testified just to his generalized findings, all right? Well, at that point, a Tuscadero chief executive, Melvin Hunter, who had approved and supported the Padilla study, abruptly retired without offering any reason why. He was replaced by a man named John D. Morales. What they did was they shut down Padilla's study. They confiscated all his data. They actually went to his home and seized physical records of boxes, demanded that he turn over all the electronic records, and they even accused him after they had pushed this data on him and given him this assignment. They accused him of accessing this illegally through the, um, I have the name of it down here somewhere, but basically through the electronic record system that the state of California keeps. They did everything they could to suppress this study, and you can find all of this out there again. The article is called Assessing the Real Risk of Sex Offenders, Dr. Padilla's Dangerous Data. As soon as the study didn't show what they wanted, California went out of its way to do everything they could to suppress this information. And, and this is what is going on every day. Okay? I've seen these treatment providers sit there and lie to people right in their face about things that they were said. Okay? No matter what you... charge and a 
got on their jacket as a sex offense. And I'm actually not kidding, unfortunately. I would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and, 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 it, 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 and it's so hard to accept. Because, look, look you, you like saying terrorists. You say sex offender, people say, oh my God, you know this. And, again, yes, there are horrible things on there, okay? No one wants to be raped. No one wants to be, no child wants to be molested. Nobody's saying anything bad or negative or anything about any of the victims. No one's even denying that there are victims, okay? But don't make us fall the victims. This is a bad and a dangerous law for so many reasons. It locks you up for what people think you will do. In New Jersey a few years ago, unfortunately it never got out of committee, but it's still lurking there the way bad legislation does. Somebody introduced something called the Violent Predator Act. It was basically a clone of the SVP Act with the word sexual taken out. This would allow anybody who was arrested for vandalism, fighting or public drunkenness, virtually anything, because most of these laws have what they call a catch-all provision, where the judge can deem on the record that your offense qualified, even if it's not listed. This would have allowed them to lock up anybody in a, in a civil commitment center at the end of their sentence, and they were trying to apply it to non-sexual offenses. Now, fortunately, that, at the time, was where people draw the line. But we spent about the last 10 years in this country learning that where people used to draw the line doesn't really mean anything anymore. So, you know, the danger of these is not just the harm that it's inflicting on the 5,000-some-odd people in 20 states and the federal program that are behind the walls of this. The danger of this is that once you put a law out there that allows preventive detention, which this is, and again, don't forget, in at least two states, and I, mean, I, I believe there are more, but I know absolutely that Illinois and Kansas don't even have to have a conviction. And there's another thing about the so-called therapy. They'll sit there and look dead in the eye and say, this is a forensic institution. We're bound by the law. We have to go by what's on the record. So we don't want to hear, well, look, I took a deal because I was afraid of getting 20 years. They told me I'd do three years to get out, or it didn't really happen this way in the record. No, 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 no. You, sir, you have to go by what's on that record. Whatever it says on your judgment of conviction, that's the actual document that the court signs and sends you to jail and all that. You have to go by our judgment. Okay, it's, it's forensic legal institution. You have to go by it. But let you have something that was dismissed. Let you have something that was found not guilty. Let you have something where the witnesses even recanted. They'll look you dead in the eye and say, "Oh well, we, that's just that's just the official version. We want to hear the real story." Wait a minute. Two minutes ago, you were only interested in what's on the record. Yeah. Now you want to hear the real story because I it cuts against me. Um, I got a question because I everything you're I mean it, you, you're blowing my mind right now, but it's also bringing up this thought that you know there's a they've been releasing a lot of violent criminals, uh, like you know physical violence, abusers, uh, you know weapons, abu uh, uh, violence with weapons, that kind of stuff. People that have done violent crimes, robbing people with. I don't know all the legal terms for it, but violent crimes, just not sex offending. But they're getting released. And now they're releasing. Like, I, I don't understand why they are being released in certain states. In states, by the way, that have these hospitals like Kalinga, as you brought up. Why would they release them 
but seek to uh, detain and capture and disappear people that fall under the sex offender label. Why is that becoming such an emphasis? And like they're building MSOP, they're they're adding more beds. And I heard that they're building other uh, these other they're adding on to these other prisons. Why build that out, but then release violent criminals? That's I guess that's the question. Can you answer that? I, 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 They can 
Wow. You can tell me, you can tell me that, that being attracted to a 15-year-old girl or having sex with her, or a guy if I'm gay, you know, is, is wrong. You can tell me it's immoral. You can tell me it's bad for her or him. You can tell me it's not a good thing to do. You can even make somewhat of a case that it should be a crime. That can be debated back and forth, but okay. Don't sit there and tell me it's a sickness. Don't sit, look, one of the things that, that made me end up in here is I had a martial arts school and I was accused of molesting students, and I'm not going to go into my story that deep in particular, but let me tell you something. This idea that, that overage sex is all these predatory men, listen, you go, you go run a judo class full of soccer moms and high school wrestlers, and you see just how, how, how exclusive that is to men, all right, man? There's no way. <laughs> I mean, you know, but people don't want to admit that to themselves. People don't want to admit that they've had impulses. A guy doesn't want to admit. A guy's got a 13-year-old daughter. He doesn't want to admit that he's watching her friends running around in sundresses and he's kind of digging them, okay? Maybe some people deep in their heart can't face the fact that they're gay. Maybe some people deep in their heart can't face the fact that their marriage isn't satisfying or that they have violent sexual impulses. And these are people that control them. I'm not accusing these people of crimes. But to other them, to other people who do this, to push that impulse away, because that's not, you know, a normal, decent sort of crime like theft or murder or something. And, I mean, look, look what they cut out on TV, okay? That's true. When, we celebrate ran, violence. Yeah, when they ran the Rocky Horror Show for the first time on TV, what did they cut out? They cut out Frank giving, they, they cut out Frank giving Brad the blowjob. Mm -hmm. They didn't cut out him smashing meatloaf in the head with, a, with an ice axe. It's true. Okay? Society has said it's okay to hate. 
and they just lock them up again forever. Hey, I got a stupid question for you. Sure. So you know how... Atter- give you a stupid answer. Perfect. You know how uh, you see the TV cases, you got the attorneys prayed in front of the cameras and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Why do public defenders not do the same thing? I think some of them try to. I think some of them do. And I think the ones that are better at that work end up working for high-powered law firms. Now, don't get me wrong. I've got one guy, and again, it's his business to share, so I'm not going to give his name, but I got one guy who actually left private practice to, uh, to come into the public defender system. I got another one who graduated, and I forget what law school, but it's called Seton Hall, among others. He was in the top seven students of his class. He came in to do this work. He's now the head of the unit that defends these cases. He came in to do this work, and he felt this was the most important area of law in the country because he is so scared by that. Do you talk to him? this law for all the reasons I said. Yeah, I, I speak to him all the time. We tell him all the time. Tell him if he wants a, uh, a podcast to call me or any other I media. One, one might, one, one probably won't. He's, he's very big on not trying his cases in the newspapers, as they say, but I'll talk to him about it. And, and I, I encourage um, because I think that this can be an educational tool. And that's what I'm hoping. Uh, I'm just letting people know. You know, you know uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of what I'm able to give you is because I've had 20 years of my life to mainly devote to studying this crap, okay? Yeah. And believe me, is no fun. You know, I mean, it's just, it's... But it's hard to read, man. Through. It's hard to, like, get through. All the material that you all have sent me, like, I'm reading it, and my mind's blown. But it's not like it's reading the funnies. I just dated myself. Um, you know what I mean? It's not. It's not. Just, it's not. It's not easy reading. But my God, is it important? And be, and it also it, this carries over into so many other issues. Obviously, because we've covered so much ground already. But this is this is a bit. It's amazing how they've tried to hide all of you away into this black abyss, soul sucking depth of hell. But the problem is, it's still carrying over into our lives in ways that most people are not aware of. And this is a sneaky beast, I think. This is, I mean, because of how it affects other areas of life also. Exactly, exactly. And this is, this gets into something that, that's central to this. And that I think because these laws were mostly passed in the early 2000s, I think these were kind of the canary in the coal mine, which again... Some people were saying at the time, all right, one of the problems is that a lot of the so-called facts that they relied on just weren't true, okay? And this goes back to something, they're they're, they're called the Milnot cases and and Chazelton cases. Now, the the relation of this to anything we're talking about will seem weirdly tangential at first, but follow me. There were laws that were passed in the 1930s that were eventually struck down around 1972 that had to do with a substance called filled milk. Filled milk is basically milk with the milk fat taken out and some other fat put in. I mean, literally anything, olive oil, margarine, oleo, whatever. What happened is the dairy lobbies in the 1930s got together and they convinced a bunch of states that this was somehow dangerous, that this was imitation milk, that this was a dangerous poison. They knew it wasn't. But it affected their business. So they were able to get bans on this put through in a lot of states. 
out of this was basically that the idea is that essentially if a law lacks a sound basis in empirical fact, if the science doesn't work, if it's just not a rational law, the courts are not free to ignore that. The courts and uh, Chaselton, uh, uh, Milnot versus Richardson, there's a bunch of cases. And again, I'll send them to you so you, people can link to them. But the courts are actually bound to go by the real world science of things. Except they're not anymore. Look how unmoored we become as a society just by science denial. And it's on the left as well as the right, okay? The, the, the Lysenkoism, Lysenkoism, okay, this, this goes back to something, and I'll show you how dangerous this was. This was something that actually got people killed in the Soviet Union. Have you ever heard the term Lysenkoism? No, you've said a lot of words I've never heard today. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Lysenkoism <laughs> is, is two things. One, it's the irrational idea that you can affect genetically something by its environment. Now, there are gene switches that can be turned on and off, and you can damage them, but you can't winter wheat, you can't freeze wheat and then have it grow in the cold weather, which is what this nut Lysenko did. The other term, the other meaning of Lysenkoism is when politics takes over science. Stalin, for some reason, loved this guy. He ended up literally pushing this program where these idiots would take wheat, seed grain, put it in a freezer, and then take it to Siberia and think because they'd frozen it, it would grow. <laughs> exactly. It didn't happen. But you know what? I watched a documentary about locking, this, actually. Yeah. Stalin was locking up scientists and shooting people and executing people for trying to tell him and people that this wouldn't work. <laughs> this, was, and this was science denial. Now look where we've come as a society, okay? Look at the people who want to deny global warming, okay? Look at the people... Who want to, you know, who want to believe that, you know, that that, that, that doctors can't be listened to in terms of women's health care. Okay, look at the people, and now look at the people who made up all these myths about sex offenders. When the, the recidivism rate, the highest measure that even the people in this field can legitimately come up with, and even that's highly questionable, is about thirty percent as the top category of recidivism. Well, that's a 7 out of 10 chance that somebody won't commit a crime. And the real numbers hover down in the 3 to 6% range. But you still have a Supreme Court that went and approved these things on the premise that these guys don't stop. And we know that these guys do it again and again. And this is one of the highest rates of recent. None of that was true. And this started about 20 years ago. So once that ball of the law being able to just roll over and just churn up science and popular politics being able to just churn up facts and take them away, okay? When, when, when that is, is a juggernaut that is going to end up destroying everything because I'm sorry, bad information destroys the world, okay? If you have an engineer that builds a bridge that is not sound, people walk on it and they fall into whatever's underneath and that's what we're doing as a society, and that's the real danger of laws like these. As much as I'm personally affected by it, as much as 5,000 some odd other people are, the whole country and eventually the whole world is in danger, if not specifically from this, although I would say definitely, but from things like this, when people let their fear and their panic rule what should be the rational part of their mind, rule what should be the compassionate part of their mind, 
should be the idea that, you know, there but for the grace of whatever go I, I could be in that guy's shoes. I might have done something. Man, I'm glad I never, or man, I'm glad nobody ever found out. Because I'll tell you what, and it, it's out there on the records, and I don't have the names in my head, but I can get them to you, and I'll get them to you to link on their website. There was a settlement agreement. Remember I mentioned ADTC, the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center, the, yeah. the actual prison for people doing time? Uh-huh. Well, a few years ago, a couple of the three of the therapists were on their way to a conference, to a conference for people who treat sex offenders. And the three of them stopped over at a motel for the night. And lo and behold, two of the therapists were men, and one of them was a woman. And guess what? They raped her. They sexually assaulted her. She sued, and there was a settlement, and a lot of it was quashed. But these are the people that are supposed to be providing treatment. There was a case in, uh, that, again, was settled eventually. There was an agreement and uh, a settlement with me. But there was a sexual harassment suit among the treatment staff here. So, you know, you read these things, and you're like, my God, the monkeys have captured the peanut machine and are now running the circus. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's true because it's I I think about stuff that I somehow got away with, but then, but I know that that's true for a lot of people. That a lot of people can say that, and it, again, it doesn't justify. But it's I guess what the prop the, for the public, for, from my perspective, look, we can talk about all the money that's wasted. We can talk about the cash cow that these prisons are, and the incentives of why how, how much these therapists get paid. We can talk about all that stuff, um, but in the end, what the public that's not locked in one of these prisons need to understand is that this it's very, very black and white in how uh, somebody can just decide that what you did was deemed to be, you're now a sexually violent person, you're a violent predator, it, and, it's, and it can happen with the most simple thing. I mean, honestly, if it was just my girlfriend, like you say, Jessica and I weren't married, I could go up to her and because we've had sex and we've had all this great stuff that blah, blah, blah. Well, then one day she's mad at me and I go up and I slap her on the, and I don't know she's mad at me, but I slap her on the butt like I normally do because I'm a caveman and I love my wife, whatever. I, I mean, I can, I feel like I can kind of slap my butt, my wife on the butt, but let's just pretend we're dating. What I'm getting at is this. She could then go, he inappropriately touched me. And guess what happens? I'm in trouble. Because and you know what? If that happened to you, there's a 98 point, I think, 7, something like that. No, it's 98.6. It's like a body temperature, as I remember it. There's a 98.6 likelihood that that's the first time you've any, ever done anything like that. And that's the real That's what, yeah, That's that why I'm bringing this up. That's the, that's the real thing that the public should focus on. These things, every study that's, that's been done in states where these laws have been enacted doesn't prevent anything. 98% of sex offenses are committed by people who are first-time offenders who never commit another act like that again in their lives. Okay? So these, these laws are, are not only bad and dangerous for the effect they have on our thinking, on our law, and our society. Those are just plain don't work. Yeah. And it's it, it, even crazier. People talk about the cash cow that it is, and this, that, and the other. You know what? To a certain extent, and in some places, even that's a myth. Some of this money is just getting wasted. 
able to get a job anywhere else. Some of them are talented. You know, I, I'm not going to say that these treatments, it's, look, I look at the treatment team in aggregate as what it is here, as an absolute beast. It's one of the most contemptible bodies of people in the world. That said, there are people in it who either A, are stuck in it because they have to make a living, or B, the poor souls don't have any better sense than to think they're actually helping someone, okay? But the truth of it is, these things do almost nothing but generate misery. And that they do in, in abundance. They do a great job of that. They do a great job of separating people from their families. They do a great job of perpetuating ridiculous myths. They do a great job of pouring money down a hole, okay? It's a government period. But you know what? Nobody's even getting rich off of this crap. And, and it's just sad. All of that money is just being wasted, and it's all based on people's fears and on their panic. Nobody wants to be labeled Senator Pervert. Nobody wants to go out and say that he campaigned for the release of over 500 sex offenders. You know, I, well, wait a second. But isn't there an incentive to have the beds full? Uh, not really. I mean, it depends on That's... the state. Yes, in the privately run companies, yes. Okay, in, okay. In, in New Jersey, yeah, in New Jersey, you know, there's a myth that it's that it's a uh, hundred thousand dollars per year per sex offender, which is essentially correct. But that's just based on on taking the total budget and dividing by the number of people they have here. It's not like somebody pushes a button and then ka-ching, oh, we got another one, that's another hundred grand in the, in the pot. No. And even when that's being done, that's being divided up so small amongst so many people, okay? Hell, they have a staffing shortage here. They don't, you know, and it, in some of these places, the, the so-called staff that they have, I mean, in New Jersey, at least there's some professional requirement for the alleged treatment staff. Some of these places, you have people without degrees, you have people, you know, that, that, are, that are working on their degree as social workers, that are getting their practice hours in. It's, it's just a morass. Now, I agree, like in Texas and some of the places where they're run by for-profit companies, yes, there's a profit motive there, and that gets me to for-profit prisons, which, quite frankly, to me, is nothing but slavery, okay? Yeah, if sure. you are locking somebody else up to make money, you are keeping slaves. I don't care how you justify it, all right? That's and maybe that's irrational, and maybe that's an emotional position of mine, but but that's my position, mm -hmm. and believe me, I could muster back to support it. I could, I support that, what you just said. That's my irrationality. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I support what you just said, hundred percent. Look, man, I'm 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 an absolute. I you know I, I always say that if you wake me up at three thirty, I'm a libertarian. If you wake me up two hours later, I'm a anarcho-capitalist, and I got to drift around. Somewhere to be a left, a left libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, and, and and you know, and, and even the best, uh, even the even the best libertarian writers, um, the ethics of liberty. I can't think of the name. I have to know me, so I can't think of the name of the beat. Murray Rothbard. Even Murray Rothbard has said that there are certain things that shouldn't be done for a profit. Okay, keeping people incarcerated is one. Okay, there are there are times. When a good, responsible capitalist, not the, not the pirates we have running things now, okay, will understand that there are some things that are above the profit mode. So for all you Marxists out there, take it easy. We're not all like that. But, you know, really, there are some things, and I think prisons are one of them. Prisons should not be run on a for-profit basis. You know the reason that nobody can run these things like a business? Because it's not a business. And nor should it be. Did, did you grow... Only put people 
prison, you want people to go out and commit crimes. You keep doing business. <laughs> That's right. Here, here's a hundred bucks. Go rob somebody for me. Hey, I got a question. Did you did you grow up wanting wanting to do radio or something? Actually, I was a I was a theater major in school. I was ah. An actor until I, yeah, yeah, that was my that, that was that was my grand passion. That's what I would have been doing. Well, but I, I'm not. <laughs> well, you uh, like I kind of feel like I'm just sitting here doing talk radio right now, without smoking a cigarette well, in a dark room with one light and. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Whatever uh, those uh, old uh, movies were. Well, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a big room with a lot of dim lights, and they took away the tobacco products about seven years ago. So I don't know. <laughs> oh wow! I, I, I hope I hope what I've done is is to give people a, a real picture of what's going on, and I hope the takeaway from this is 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 a couple of things. Number one, okay, these laws lock you up based on what somebody thinks you might do. Number two, sex offenders have the second lowest, next only to murderers or homicides, killers, whatever you want to term use, have the second lowest rate of recidivism of any group of criminals. Hovers around 6%. The top inflated number where they throw in all kinds of junk science to bust it up, the top inflated number that anybody's come up with is about 30%, and even that says 7 out of 10 of them won't ever do it again. But the real number is more like about 5 or 6%. Okay? And these laws are poisoning our system of justice. I want, I, want you to, I want you to answer this question for me. Why should the public, like, I know you're, you've answered the question a few times over, but like in a sentence or two, why should the public care about these institutions, pr shadow prisons, sole life-sucking uh, facilities, why should people care enough to fight or to get involved to help shut them down? Why should people care? Because it goes back to one of the things I said at the beginning, okay? And the simpler version of it is, if it can happen to me today, it can happen to you tomorrow, all right? As we move farther and farther away from rationality and compassion and actually thinking about what we're doing, to be motivated by fear and anger and, and the desire to inflict pain on someone else, that eventually chews up everyone. And this is one of those things that if you let it go, you know, man, it's, it's like heroin. It may feel great for a minute, but believe me, that stuff ain't good for you. And laws like this, they may make people feel good for a while. But again, look at about the early 2000s, the late 1990s, when these laws were being passed. And these stood up over time. And now look at the state of things. Now look at the degree of irrationality that's worked its way into public discourse and how many people are suffering. This was the seed. I really believe that, that in many ways, this was one of the seeds. That, that grew into the malignant growth that's just taking over all of our public discourse where we become a more divided, more divisive, angrier, more intolerant society. And I think that stamping out laws like this and trying to understand, you know, going back to a fair system, getting, you know, getting America back where you did the crime, you did the time, you do, you get your new start over again. And, you know, and we had laws. We 
had laws that if you were a repeat offender, you'd be locked up for life. Those laws were in the books. There were civil commitment laws. If you had a genuine mental illness and were a danger, you could be put somewhere for treatment. This is different. But once it gets a hold of us, man, look out. You know, talking about registration, you know those over a billion people that are registered as sex offenders in this country? There's only 5,000 of us behind these walls. But there are a million people that the tendrils of this thing is touched. And any one of them could be picked up, almost any one of them, any one of them coming through New Jersey could be picked up at any time. Okay? I don't understand why they just, if, if, you, if somebody's like, considered a high risk but they haven't done a crime like we have one of our friends uh tom who um said you know from what everything i i I believe with all my heart he was falsely accused um but he 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 had the idea of the gps monitors and to be able to track if somebody that you were really concerned with that was high risk but hadn't done a crime again they served their time like put something like that on them. Or, but in the other part of this that we didn't get into is if it's a treatment facility and it's supposed to help you, you know, if you're doing the treatment, it's meant to get you well. There, there, there should be proper therapies in place. At, at worst, at, 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 at the very least, these hospitals should actually have that because there is good treatment out. Now, I'm a man of faith, and I couldn't have, you know, I don't, I don't judge any of you all, even the ones that are there guilty. I don't judge them because I don't look at the things that I did to be any better. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into that contest. This is not a, a pissing contest here about, you know, evil or whatever was wrong or the, the, the wrongs that were done, the bad that was done. It's better not be an outdoor one or we catch a second best record. Exa- yeah, and, but I... You know, I just, I, I, I recognize how easily this could happen to me I, I, or, or, or to any, any other person I know growing up. And it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend that people are, being, are suffering there and don't necessarily need to be suffering. Other people can, re, uh, the point that I was trying to make, though, is that I was a mess, a mess, a, a chem sex addict for 20 years almost. And my, I mean, what that does to your brain and the, just, just where I was at emotionally, spiritually, physically, everything. Like, I was a demon. I was a demon. I didn't, I don't believe I was safe to be around. That said, I mean, God changed everything about me. And, and I've healed. And, but my journey for healing even has been a long process. I'm not all the way healed. I'm not all the, I'm not. I, I'm not, I'm so far from protect, from, from perfection, it's like, it, it depresses me sometimes. But that said, I can look back at where I was in my life and my behavior and my emotions and the way that I acted, my lack of impulse control. I learned all that stuff because I was willing to, to, to do the work to heal because I wanted to but be, what, hold on, but yeah, hold on, hold on. But it was important to me after the realization that God had a better plan for me that I surrendered to that and it chose that life and it took work and commitment to do that. I had good, I was fortunate to have, to grow up around good influences somewhat. I mean, I was around some evil stuff too, but I did see success. I did see good people. 
And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. However, if someone is, in, in, is installed hope, any amount of hope, regardless of what their upbringing was, even if I was, I was whether they were abused, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. If hope is, is delivered to them in whatever capacity, that means they have an opportunity to turn their life around and the opportunity that is available for every single person alive is that all the bad stuff that we've done and that we've gone through, we get to actually make it something we get to be grateful for because it, it could be the fuel for our purpose. It could be the actual, the, the actual thing that, that helps like the way that we turn with the way that we are able to make up for the wrong that we did is to use our bad and use our story and use our redemption to reuse re, whatever it may be, like whatever the, the word is, we get to use that to show other people a way out of their own hell. And what I like about you out of all the people that I've talked to is that you seemingly have a great attitude considering you've been there for over 20 years. You've educated yourself. You've kept yourself busy. You've managed to have a sense of humor. Like you, you sound like you actually have hope and that's inspiring. And I believe that that is, you know, that is a good influence on other people there. And so I really like that about you. So my question for you is this, how is it that you're able to keep your wits about you in such a really awful situation and have such a good attitude and have a really great sense of humor? Um, like, how are you able to maintain that? Um, Pika, um, eating non-food objects, those books I was telling you about, I've actually consumed, I've been chewing on, I, I do it when you're talking, so I can't hear me. I've actually eaten two copies of those books. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, when, when, when I stopped you before and I said, that's the key, what you said there was your willingness. Mm -hmm. Okay?
that's man, that's a beautiful way to end. My man, you are welcome back um, anytime. I uh, I I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the conversation. Actually, I've enjoyed our conversations that really could have been recorded just as easy. Um, but I I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for all the information. I'm also grateful for a different perspective that I've heard because you know a lot of here a lot of people throw out the the wasted money thing and you're honest even about that you know like even the the numbers like I appreciate the integrity and say well that's kind of I mean it's kind of true but it's like one of those statistics that you can manipulate to say what you want it to say um yeah, and, it, and it varies from place to place listen I just want to get two things in yeah one more time before we go okay yeah there's a lot, and, and, you know, some of the people from Cure, an excellent organization, Citizens United for the Rehabilitation of Errands, they'll supply you with information, but I want to tell everybody out there, especially any legal professionals who read this book, Shaming the Constitution, Michael Perlin and Heather Ellis Kukla. Now, for professionals, if you're familiar with sex offender law, it'll be hormone law, but at least half the book is his references is professional journal uh, articles, peer-reviewed studies, so that the second half of this book is an absolute cornucopia of references and work and resources that a legal professional could draw on to improve his practice of law in this area. And for lay people and for even legal professionals who are unfamiliar with it, there's no better introduction to this than shame in the Constitution. And the other is Sex Panic and the Punitive State by Roger N. Lancaster. It'll give you a good insight into that whole weird American sex is the best thing in the world and sex sells and sex is what this country is based on. And, of course, sex is awful and terrible and dirty and no one should ever have it. They're both true because this is America, damn it. It'll give you a whole thing into that dynamic. You, you know, that's, I, I boy, that, I have like a four-hour presentation on the last subject alone, uh, but we don't have time for that. My man, God bless you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I've gotten to know you a little bit and I look forward to talking to you again. And like I said, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. All right, I will talk to you soon and uh, you know, give my best to your wife and to everybody. And, and hey, listen guys, thank you for Cure for hooking me up with you and you know, thank you for this opportunity. All I right. hope I set the record straight. Yeah, you're a good man. Thanks brother. Right. Wow, um, that kind of, uh, he didn't have a, like he didn't, what I liked about that, he didn't sound like a victim, and he didn't sound depressed either. Uh, I, like I felt like I was just talking to like a cousin or something. I, and I still don't know what he did. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that may sound terrible, but I'm not incredibly judgy. Um, I'm going to try not to be. And uh, just so you know, I, I kind of have an ulterior motive with these broadcasts. I do want to sneak God in there <laughs> as much as I can. Because ultimately... Y'all are going to need an act of God. I'm talking to the family members. and Because 
right now people are a little freaked out about their life and a lot of crazy going on and people are hurting financially and there's like another pandemic coming in and like just what I want to say is this and you may not like what I'm about to say but I'm going to say it because I think it needs to be said very few people give a crap about you guys very few people I care about you my wife cares about you the people fighting for you obviously care about you but it's not a lot of people This is one of those things that in the Bible where it talks, says God makes a way when there's no way. There's no way. On the surface, these arguments are not enough to inspire people to do what's right on your behalf. Human, the human, anti-human trafficking organizations have way more momentum than you. And look how well that's doing. It's not doing a thing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Not the time for that conversation. I, I, it's 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 going to be God. It's prayer. I mean, keeping the faith. Keep doing what you're doing. But this is one of those fights that you you got to have God in, involved in this. Uh, I, I can't see any other way, and I'm, I'm not being negative. Actually, I'm saying this is a positive. And why I'm doing this is because I know that you all, as, as a whole, if you were to break this out in some mathematical figure equation, the probability of these prisons shutting down, it's not going to happen. So, but it's, but I, I believe and the reason I'm involved is that I want to help uh, because I know every, everything he said, I believe, but it's, it's more than that. I believe that a lot of the men in there need to deserve a second chance. Other people had it just robbed from them. I also believe the people that were guilty that may have deserved to go back, to go there. I believe that they are worthy of another chance. I mean, do you work for it? Yeah, is there a better, I, I, and I'm not playing doctor here, but it's a statistical impossibility, most likely, that there's gonna be enough people to act on your behalf um, with the reasons that are being given. There's gotta be something else. And I pray that God reveals what that is. Uh, and I could be wrong about this. But what I'm, I'm saying this is not to discourage, but to say that collectively we have to start praying for the same goal. And, um, and for some people, for some believers that are watching this and going, have whatever judgment you may have, same kind of stuff with the Jeffrey Dahmer episode. Like if you're the type of Christian that believes that Jesus doesn't save and heal sex offenders, you're not the kind of believer I want to be around. But if you're the type of believer that believes that Jesus died for all of our sins, I'm talking to you. This 
and this may feel like praying for your enemy because some of you have been hurt some of you were molested some of you were abused um, some of you experienced you were the victim of one of the people that we're talking about but your prayers would be appreciated Jessica and I have gotten to talk to you know quite a few family members now and I admire your courage I admire your heart and I believe in what you're doing and that's why we're involved in this um, but I it's just gonna take an act of God to reveal that missing part that is going to be able to get the public to want to pay attention to this and obviously the more stuff that content that you guys can put out talking about it which we are happy to help with and any nonprofit any organization to be honest with you that is out there that is fighting the fight fighting for the voiceless fighting for those that have been left behind and forgotten like we want we're here to serve you we're here to serve you and uh i mean look we like helping all kinds of people i mean even the people that you know have the money to be able to spend millions of dollars to hire people like we help them if they need it but our heart is for the voiceless and uh and that's what motivates us to fight and using what we know our skills you know what what we use the media platform and the brought the, the the network for got a kicked off I mean, another strike on YouTube on my new account today. I didn't even publish the video and they gave me a strike. This is why we have our network. Is this a censorship-free network that Google can't mess with? And so that's why, like, in, another thing too, like we're happy to host you, but we are a truly, we rely on your blessings. We don't operate without your support as a nonprofit media organization and as a broadcast network. So we need your support. We need your donations to do that. You can scan that barcode. Um, and any support matters. It means something. If you believe in what we're doing, you you see the value in this, so into us. If we can be of service to you, let us know. We're all about trading value for value, but if you don't have the money, we're not going to say, well, screw you. I'm not going to help you. It's not how it works. But we do need your support to keep going. And um, and if you're interested in joining our team, if you're a journalist, if you're an editor, or you're a producer, um, you're a content creator yourself, you hit me up for real. Like uh, you can like that same website, livemana.org. You can go there and just contact us at the very bottom page. The email goes right to me. We, we want to grow. We want to help people all over the world. It's not just civil commitment. It's not just, um, you know, anti, well, working with former trafficking victims or current trafficking victims. Like, we want to help. We're, that's what we're here for. But we are going to bring God into the conversation. Because I don't believe that we can do any of these impossible feats without him. Now... That's the cool part, though. That's what we were created to do for these impossible feats. 
but God gets glory. God is the God of redemption. God is the God of second chances. God is the God of miracles. Your miracle. And some of you are hanging on to it. Like, like hanging on to hope. And, uh, and, and God bless you for that. It breaks my heart to talk to the ones without hope because all I want to do is like just take a bottle of hope and shove it down their throat aggressively because no other way is working. But I mean, I believe only God can do that. Anyway, I'm just rambling now. It's late here. I normally do early broadcasts, so you may get to see the sleepier version of me. But thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your support. Um, for all the families out there, literally, just it's time to pray. It's time to it's time to pray. And I know some of you have, a lot of you have. Um, but I believe God is a God of miracles, and I hope one of the things that I guess I'd never even finish saying this, but my ultimate goal is to bring the love of Jesus into the walls of those prisons because it's ultimately the love of Jesus that I believe heals all wounds. And um, I believe that with all my heart, and I want that for them, especially the ones that are hopeless. Um, but I do believe that if we get God in the conversation and can bring the love of Jesus inside those walls, I believe that they'll probably just fall down or something better or way more cool and dramatic. I don't know. Anyway, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see I once was lost but now am found was blind